mind you, Handel is not the be-all and the end-all of historical fish ambles feet. In Williamite times we had the general post office here, we had the Exchequer office and the music hall itself later became a national theatre. And the national lottery of its day took place outside the music hall. The drum was set up and the numbers of the lucky winners used to be drawn from the drum outside the music hall. And did you know that we had our own private hell in Fishamble Street? Hell? Hell, yes, believe it or not, we had a little enclave up at the top of the hill called Hell. So would you think that was enough history to be going on with? Now, just where we're standing now, inside those palisade fencings, used to be the premises of the Guineas statue makers and statue painters. They were of Italian extraction, they came here in or around 1860, uh, after the Risorgimento, after the unification of Italy, and uh, established a statue-making workshop here. We're standing now on the Essex Quay, Wood Quay end of Fishamble Street. In the old days, it ran from the riverside right up the hill, an elbow-bend-shaped hill, and it ran right to the corner of Castle Street right across, that was in the days before Lord Edward Street was built in 1886. It ran right up to the very corner of Castle Street. On the east side of Christchurch? On the east side of Christchurch, yeah. And I suppose the river gave it its name then, going from Castle Street down to the river, Fish Ambles. Well, the Fish Shambles used to be a set of booths where when the fish were landed at Wood Quay, which was the main quayside area of the city in those days, the fish were landed there, promptly put on sale in the shambles, which were set up on the west side of the street. Now, the shambles were long gone before the 16th century, but uh, the name still Fish Amble still holds good to the present day and possibly uh, as a tie-in with that there is an old folk tale more than a folk tale really of Dan O'Connell and the fish seller at the corner of number one fish amplifier Dan O'Connell a rising young barrister at the time took on in argument a very famous virago famous for her bad language and O'Connell used instead of bad language for every one of her curse words he used a mathematical or a geometric or a legal term when did a Madagascar monkey like you pick up enough common Christian decency to hide your Kenny bro as you know as you know don't choke yourself with fine language you old whiskey drinking parallelogram what's that you call me a murdered villain I call you a parallelogram ma'am and a Dublin judge and jury will say that it's no libel to call you so. Oh, Terran House, oh, holy biddy, that an honest woman like me should be called a Paddy Bellygrums, you rascally scallows board, you cowardly snake and plate legged bliggard. Oh, not you indeed, not you indeed. Why, I suppose that you'll deny that you'll keep a hypotenuse in your house. It's a lie for you, you bloody robber. I never had such a thing in my house, just swindling. Well, whether or not that episode actually happened, there is extant a print in the National Library of O'Connell and the aforementioned lady outside number one Fish Amblefield, and the house is clearly identifiable as I remember it. 
The house was there even in your time? Oh, the house was there in my time. The house was there up to the late 1960s. Now, your house is across the road, number 26, the last valiant surviving house in Fishamble Street. And did these houses look anything like that? Not really, no. Our house, my house is a much bigger house. It, it was possibly the biggest house in the street. Uh, the other houses were much smaller. Numbers one and two were three-storied houses, two-storied over shop fronts. Number three was a four-storied house. Yours, um, yours now is three storeys, no, four storeys and uh, three bays. Yes. And in summertime, I always know that it's very much inhabited because of the lovely geraniums flowering in the window, full of hope. Oh, yes. Despite oh. the fact that it looks very solitary there. It is solitary, but still hopeful. Well, tell us about it. It was built in its present form around 1720, 1721, on the foundations and on the lower part of a much earlier Elizabethan house. And how long have your family owned it for? For certain, around 180, 185 years that we know of, and possibly even longer. I'm sure you don't want to see those buttresses that are at the front of it there forever. I wouldn't worry on Julie about those because they are only a temporary measure. They'll be taken away fairly quickly. They just put them there when they were knocking down number 27. Well, as I have just said, it was built on a much earlier Elizabethan foundation. Would you like to come over and have a look? That would be very interesting. Right. Now, as we cross the road, it's Tarm Macadam now, but I remember when it was uh, stone sets. And one of my earliest sounds that I can remember was the noise of horses' hooves and urdenshod wheels rattling along the stone sets very early in the morning from the cleansing department of the corporation. Six o'clock every morning, they used to go out. And of course, the, the horses going up to cannons to load and unload iron work from Cannon's factory. Well, here we are. Come in now. We come in now at street level and we win here to the back. And we will go down into the cellar. I would ask you to be careful oh, on the steep stairs. Steep stairs. Because they're rather steep. We're standing now on a medieval paved floor, paved with rough cobbles, irregularly shaped stones. You're sure it wouldn't have been an, a street going down to the river or a I, little laneway or anything? I like wouldn't imagine so because even the very earliest maps, Speed's map, Roke's map, and other maps, always showed the basic shape, the basic ground shape of a house which existed here certainly in Elizabethan times and maybe even back further. And what kind of a house would that have been in those times? The timber framed, the, the, the classic timber framed houses which preceded the Georgian type of architecture in central Dublin. If you'd like to step this way, mind the little step there, we're on a continuation of the same paved floor. And as you can see over there in the far corner, there is 
Oh, an old fireplace. A massive fireplace with a heavy beam going across and irregular... That's surely an oak beam, would you say? Oh, that would be oak, yeah. And uh, the wall is built up of kelp, the black stone common to Dublin houses of the period. Uh, much of the city wall was built of it and portions of the city wall, the city wall would have run right across here at the end, down towards the river. Butting onto your house? Or yeah. What was we there would before have your been, house? Yeah. We would have been within, inside the city wall, not outside. Of course, in this general area, the place was full of taverns and inns. You had the Bull's Head up the street here, the London Tavern, the Fleece on the far side of the street, and beyond in the next street, in Wine Tavern Street, was the headquarters of the licensed trade. It was absolutely full of wine shops, sea beans, public houses, inns, and the like. Also, interspersed among the wine shops and the grog shops, uh, the street was occupied by members of the nobility and administration classes who operated from Dublin Castle, which was the centre of government in this city, in this country. And they all lived around here because you must remember we are talking now of the original old city. It was all built around this general area. Well, we'll wend our way up the stairs now. Be careful on that little step there and mind you don't slip on the cobbles. Yeah, they, they, they keep the dampness, don't they? They do, yeah. Condensation. All the time. In the Fish Amble Street of this city of Dublin, James, by grace of God, the rightful king, being succeeded by his son Charles, there resideth Sir Dudley Norton, Principal Secretary of State, Sir Francis Ansley, Baron of Mount Norris, Sir Edward Fisher, William Donegan, Recorder of Dublin, Sir Thomas Carey, Sir Thomas Reeves, King's Advocate, and Sir Arthur Ansley, Commissioner into Ulster. And it has come to my attention that in August of the year 1649, when Oliver Cromwell came with his army into Ireland, he brought with him one Netterville, a Romish priest supposed to be a Jesuit, who at his first coming to Dublin obtained a billet to quarter on Matthew Nulty, merchant tailor, then living in Fishamble Street near the conduit whereon the pillory then stood. Nulty, wanting convenience in his then dwelling house, furnished a room in an empty house of his next adjoining for Mr. Netterville. Netterville had not lodged many days, but Nathaniel Folks, captain of the city militia, came to Nulty and challenged him for entertaining a priest who daily said mass in his house. Nulty, being surprised at the news, declared it was more than he knew, and therefore he speedily acquainted Netterville with what the captain said. Whereto Netterville replied, I am so, and my Lord General know it, and tell the town of it, and that I am here, and will say mass every day. This Netterville was in the habit of going through Dublin, dressed as a cavalier with a sword by his side. He was Oliver Cromwell's great companion, and dined with him. 
He was of the family of Lord Netterville of Ireland and a great scholar who delighted much in music. Be a little careful on the stairs because the heights are the heights of the steps are slightly irregular. Not being a modern house. Now, here we are. Good. So this is on the first floor. This is the first floor. Yes, this is uh, what used to be known as the drawing room. It's a rectangular. It's room. a rectangular oblong room. It's about 26 feet by 17, give or take a few inches, and it has three rather large windows facing west. Door in the centre of the back wall. And the floorboards, as you can see, they're all original floorboards, and they're rather much wider, in fact, than normal present-day floorboards. They're, I suppose, 14 inches wide. I think they're pine boards. And then over here is a fireplace, angled, like the one you showed us in the cellar. Yes. On this side of the house, they're all built in the same position, all the way up. But it is a feature of older, early Georgian houses, or even earlier. That's the fireplace in a corner, with the flue it, it, going up an in angle. the corner yeah. of the room. Yeah. There are quite a few houses around central Dublin. You'll see them with angled fireplaces like that, dating from the early 18th century, or late 17th. In this fireplace here, every day, I suppose, almost every day, anyhow, for the past 200 years, a fire has been lit. And it falls to me now, at, at my time of life, and for many years past, to light that fire every day. And I often think, I constantly think, that a story told by my grandmother as a young girl she was in America she lived in America for 12 years and when she came back here to Dublin in 1822 uh, sorry 1882 the first sight of her mother was kneeling down in front of that fire trying to coax for trying to light a fire and this man over the fireplace this portrait that, uh, that portrait is a portrait of my great grandfather he died or was killed on the 6th of January, 1861. He would have been 127 years dead on the 6th of last January. He was killed, he was in a horse and trap. And the horse bolted on him on the nice road outside, just outside in Chakor, and he was flung out and fractured his skull. And he was brought back to this house, and he died in this house, not in this room, in another room upstairs. If you'll just come over here, I'll show you something which my grandfather owned. That would be the son-in-law of the of my great-grandfather. Uh, he was a breeder of birds, canaries, finches, larks, as was most Dublin men of that time. One of the early sounds I heard was bird song. 
Every house in the street and in surrounding streets had birds. On sunny afternoons and sunny evenings, they would hang the bird cages outside the windows and you could hear the birds chirping and singing away. And my grandfather uh, had a lifelong love for birds and used to collect stuffed and mounted birds, which you can see here. So we have three very colourful creatures here in a, in a glass case. But he had live birds. Oh, as well. he had live birds. He had a room full of them upstairs. Birds, mostly finches and larks. I'll just show you over here. There's a small collection of photographs. Now, this is my grandmother. She was born in 1857. She died in 1938, October 38. This is a picture of my mother, who was born in 1892. And this picture was taken when she would have been about, say, 20, give or take a year. Good-looking woman. Thank you. And underneath here is a little picture of pressed flowers. And written on it is written on it is presented by Patrick to his great grandmother on her ninetieth birthday, April the thirteenth, nineteen eighty-two. Now she died at the age of ninety-three two years ago. And there was her great grandson presenting her with this. And he may be the future and generation that, in number 26. Well, the, gener- the generation, we always had a strong link. And we always handed, it was handed down to us from one generation to the next. A, a link with the past. With the result that we have no difficulty, any of us, in bringing our minds back to the past. on the corner of uh, Fishamble Street and West Essex Street we cross over to the west side of Fishamble Street and uh, in medieval times and much later there was a large amount of alleyways courtyards up and down the street there was Fleece Alley famous for velvet makers Copper Alley up further Saul's Court Deanery Court, I, I remember Deanery, the entrance to Deanery Court myself, and John's Lane. Now, the only one left today is John's Lane. The civic offices are sprawling the over everything else. The civic offices are covered everything else. John's Lane is a most interesting little thoroughfare. Did you know that there was a place called Hell down there? The abode of the liars. It was close up to Christchurch. It was, at that time, the Four Courts, before the present-day Four Courts was built in 1780, 1781 by Gandon. Uh, the city marshalsea was also there, but it was uh, inhabited to a great extent by lawyers and attorneys and people of that generally ilk. 
it, of course, it's known far and wide, all over the, these islands, because lots of people have written various pieces down through history about hell. Hell, dear reader, was certainly a very profane and unseemly sobriquet to give to a place that adjoined a cathedral whose name was Christchurch. And my young mind, when I first entered there, was struck with its unseemliness. Yes, and more especially, when over the arched entrance there was pointed out to me the very image of the devil, carved in oak, and not unlike one of those hideous black figures that are still in Thomas Street, hung over tobacconist doors. Nevertheless, hell to me in those days was a most attractive place, and often did I go there, for the yard was full of shops where toys and fireworks and kites and all the playthings that engaged the youthful fancy were exposed for sale. But hell was not only attractive to little boys, but also to bearded men. Here the old stagers, the seniors of the currens, the Yalvertons and the bully Egans would enjoy the concomitants of good fellowship. There, Prime Sergeant Malone, Dark Phil Tisdale, and prior still to them, the noted Sir Toby Butler, cracked their jokes and their marrow bones, toasted away claret, and tossed repartee until they died, as other men die and are forgotten. And here were comfortable lodgings for single men, and I remember reading in a journal of the day an advertisement intimating that there were to be let furnished apartments in hell, N.B., they are well suited to a lawyer. Through all the employments of life, each neighbor abuses his brother. Troll and troll, they call husband and wife. All professions below one another. The priest calls the lawyer a cheat. The lawyer be named the divine, and the statesman, because he's so great, thinks he's straight as honest as mine. For a priest calls the lawyer a cheat, the lawyer be named the divine, and the statesman, because he's so great, thinks he's straight as honest as mine. up along the hill now. It's quite a steep hill, incidentally. Uh, funny enough, we always, the people here always refer to this as the hill. Never fish ambulance, but always the hill. You're and, quite right, uh, it is quite steep. Oh, it is quite steep, yeah, and it still uh, holds its medieval contours. Yes, turning in now towards the east side of Christchurch. Yeah, there's an elbow bend here now. Well, now, my grandmother often told me she distinctly remembers a fountain or a pump. In the middle of the road in the there? Mi- yeah. In or around this point, before the, the, the Vartry water system was brought into the city. And there was supposed to be a pillory as well? There, there was a pillory, although I, I imagine the pillory possibly was a little higher up, near St. John's Church. And there were one or two people around here who probably would have deserved a pillory. There were two ladies up here in Copper Alley, which uh, they had an establishment in there and... One of them ended up on the scaffold at Bagarath, past St. Stephen's Green. She was executed. Public scaffold, time. then? 
Yeah, all the public executions in those, in those days. We are now at the top of the present-day Fish Amble Street, with Christchurch here on our right hand, and looking across at the Castle Inn, in the old days, prior to the building of Lord Edward Street in 1886, the Castle Inn actually was in Fish Amble Street, which ran to the corner of Castle Street. When the street was renumbered, James Clarence Mangan is alleged to have been born in this house, as was also Henry Grattan. But people don't know whether but it's whether number it's three that is now the Castle Inn, or the number three that you remember down at the down bottom of the Down at street. the bottom, which existed up to 15 years ago. I think a choice has been made, though. They've put a plaque here on the Castle Inn to commemorate the birth of James Clarence Mangan. Exactly. But you say also the Grattans lived in this the facility. The Grattans did have associations with the present-day Castle Inn, as did also the Usher family. Now, in the 18th and 19th century, what kind of trades and professions would have been practised here along? Well, we had basket makers, upholsterers, the odd printing office, apothecaries. As a matter of fact, even in my time, up to the end of the emergency period, the end of the 40s, there was a famous uh, wholesale chemist, Solway Frere, used to occupy just where we're standing now. There were engravers, and the lawyers, of course, occupied all around the area, in and around hell. Saunders newsletter, Thursday the 22nd of November, 1781. An apprentice is wanted to a genteel, profitable business. A young man of good connections will be taken on reasonable terms. Enquire at number 57, Fishampton Street. McGee's Weekly Packet! McGee's Weekly Packet, Saturday the 2nd of August, 1777. Tuesday, Catherine Field of Fishamba Street was before the Chief Commissioners of Excise, convicted of selling wine and spirits by retail without a licence and fined £20. Likewise, Andrew Dermot of Fishamba Street. Freeman's Journal! Freeman's Journal. In this new year of 1742, under the sign of the Three Tons, James King, proprietor of Fishamble Street, would draw the attention of the public to the daily ordinary with two substantial dishes of meat at eight pence per head. And, of course, there were plenty of taverns and inns around the place would follow them right up into the middle of the 19th century, early 18th, and right up into the middle of the 19th, there was the Fleece Tavern, there was the Bull's Head, there was the famous London Tavern, where where uh, Joseph Damer, when he came to the city first, lived for a great number of years. Well, he was a famous usurer. He was, yeah, but he left a lot of his money, and there's still a Damer house exists here in Dublin, financed directly by the money he left. And one down the country as well. And there's one down the country, down in Rosquay, I think it is. But you've mentioned the Bull's Head, now that's the a famous tavern. Yeah, the Bull's Head was the headquarters of a, a very famous musical club, and uh, they used to perform for charity. And that was set up in the Bull's Head. And Dean Swift, of course, had something to say well, about Swift, his choristers. Yeah, being Swift wasn't too enthusiastic about it because he said some of his choristers spent too much time in it and some of his clergy they spent more time in the bull's head at their musical practices than they did at their ecclesiastical practices down in St. Patrick's. And of course that leads us on to Handel through a man called Neil, isn't that right? Yes. Neil 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 started a music hall or opened Neil's music hall 
1741, the year before Handel's Messiah was first performed there. Uh, Richard Cassels was the architect, but uh, it was used extensively for charitable performances, for to aid various charities. Taking over from the Bull's Head Museum. Taking over from the, the Bull's Head. Well, we're over across the road from where all that was established. The yes, music right hall, across music there hall. now, Neil's was located in that little corner there. There is a plaque on the wall of Kennan's uh, to commemorate the per first performance of the Messiah on the 13th of April, 1742. Kennan's who took over. So let's go over and see that. For the relief of the prisoners in the several jails and for the support of Mercer's Hospital in Stephen Street and of the charitable infirmary on the Inn's Quay, on Tuesday the 13th of April, this year 1742, will be performed at the Music Hall in Fish Amble Street, Mr. Handel's new grand sacred oratorio called The Messiah, in which the gentlemen of the choirs of both cathedrals will assist with some concertos on the organ by Mr. Handel. Tickets to be had at the Music Hall and at Mr. Neal's in Christchurch Yard at half a guinea each. Many ladies and gentlemen who are well-wishers of this noble and grand charity for which the oratorio was composed requested as a favour that the ladies who honour this performance with their presence would be pleased to come without hoops, the gentlemen without their swords, as it will greatly increase the charity by making room for more company. So here we are now where William Neal built his music hall, but there's not much sign of music now apart from the sounds of the ironworks that it is today. What size would you say the space is? Well, I would say where we are standing now would be, say, 100 feet, feet by about 80, give or take a few feet. And all you have are the bare brick walls 
bare brick walls and a perspex roof, or a roof with skylight in it. And a few hoists. Well, of course, when Neil built the original music hall in 1741, it didn't look very much either, because uh, it was built on a rundown site at the time. I have a little piece of poetry here, which you might be interested to hear. He raised this lofty fabric from the ground where heaps of rubbish in confusion stood, old walls, old timber, and some rotten wood. From the old chaos they new forms assume, here stands the hall, and there the drawing room, adorned with all that workmanship can do by ornaments and architecture too. The oblong area runs from east to west, fair to behold, but hard to be expressed. That's extraordinary. That's a contemporary poem. It is. And then it says, at the eastern end, there stood the chair of the noble president. That would have been the president of the music club. And then, in different classes at the western end, musicians with their instruments attend while they diffuse their harmony around the concave arch reverberates to sound. So would that be the arch that we came in through, the arch that leads out onto Fishamble Street? Well, certainly the arch, that particular arch did appear in early prints of this corner. But whether it was in actual fact part of the fabric of the original music hall, I wouldn't hazard a guess. There could have been an entrance elsewhere, of course, onto Copper Alley. Yes, uh, it is on record that people came in and went by Copper Alley. And then, of course, it had various uses. It, it wasn't just a place for concerts and oratorios. It also had operas here and balls. I also remember reading one time a, a description of a ball which took place here in the late 1770s. I think it was St. Patrick's Day, 1778, when uh, the notables attended here. Luke Gardner among them. Luke was the entrepreneur of his day. He built most of the North City area. He was here and uh, the Lord Lieutenant was dressed in as, a, as a, an apple woman, an apple lady and fruit seller and uh, he had oranges which transmogrify themselves into shamrocks and things. And Mr Gardner at supper was transformed into a black domino. Mr Hancock was half abbey, half officer, a very laughable character. Oh, and Mr Cavendish was Mercury and Mr Finley a huge fashionable lady. Sir Richard Johnston in the character of Pam allowed it to be an excellent mask, though he neither sang nor played his pipes. Lord Glorawley, a sideboard of plate, and Mr. Archdall personated the man with the charity box on Essex Bridge. Oh, and he collected five pounds, nine shillings, and ten pence. Then the ladies, Miss Stewart was an Indian princess with a great quantity of jewels. Two Mrs. Norman witches, Miss Evans and Miss Saunders came as two Diana's, and Miss Beston a nun. Miss Gardner was a Sicilian peasant, who oh, and Mrs. Gardner in the character of Sistina the opera singer, a most inimitable mask. She sang one of Sistina's songs.
And after it was a music hall and a place for festival occasions, balls and uh, ridottos, as they called them, it became a theatre then. It did. That was the early 19th century, though. As a matter of fact, I have a little playbill here of the period. You may like to... You're a great man have for the record, it. aren't you? The Sam Paray Theatre. That's a great name. Isn't it? Dublin Morning Post and Daily Advertiser. Monday, February the 19th, 1827. The new Sam Paray Theatre for Shamble Street. This evening, by kind permission of the Right Honourable the Lord Mayor, will be performed Le Grand Diable, or The Brigand of Genoa after which the young American Mr. Blackmore from Vauxhall Gardens will go through astonishing feats on the cord volant. Also will appear the celebrated Flemish Hercules from the Royal Theatres of Brussels and Amsterdam, likewise the celebrated Enfant Sacchi from Franconi's Olympic Circus. She will be accompanied by the eccentric performances of Signor Colombier, Primo Buffo from the Theatres of Lisbon, Madrid, and Franconi's Parisian Theatre. The whole to conclude with Mr. Blackmore's astonishing and rapid ascent to the back of the gallery, when over the centre of the pit he will stand upon his head on the rope, which feat he has performed for the last three seasons at Vauxhall Gardens at a distance of upwards of a hundred feet from the earth amidst showers of fire. After which, for the first time in this theatre, a favourite comic ballad called Fun and Physic or The Village Doctor. Boxes three and six, pit two shillings, gallery a shilling. NB, the house is thoroughly aired and fitted up in a manner to ensure the comfort and convenience of the audience. The boxes and lobbies carpeted and the theatre will be lighted by wax, a refectory in the saloon. That's great. So there was a gallery and a pit and boxes. And boxes. And your man came across on his tightrope. That's wonderful. And that's, that's 1827, 1827, the Saint-Pere And then, I think, Kennan's moved down around the 1870s. But around it was 1870, but before that it was the Prince of Wales Theatre. Another theatre on yeah. this side? Well, the same theatre, but it changed the name. Yes. And how do you know that? Well, my grandfather died or was killed on the 6th of January... My great-grandfather, sorry, was killed on the 6th of January 1864. And in the newspaper account of his death, further on down the column, there is an advertisement for a pantomime held in the theatre here. And the pantomime was entitled Brian Maru. And then in the 1870s, it finally succumbed as a place of entertainment. It did. Cannons took over on. So here we come through the arch again, the old arch looking a bit the worse for wear. Cobbles underfoot here, a few of them from the original street. And here on our left here as we come out is number 19 where the original Cannon's firm started. Before it moved down Before into the music hall. Before it moved down, it moved further on down into the music hall and away down the hill to number 25, uh, right across present day West Essex Street, which was much narrower in my young days. It also moved back up the hill, up to and number of course, 12. Essex Street had Smock Alley. It had. Essex Street used to be originally Smock Alley. So imagine the noise there must have been on nights of performances in both theatres. Indeed, because we had Neil's Music Hall here and later the theatre. Around the corner we had the Smock Alley Theatre, so this was a constant movement. There was a constant movement of, of carriages, sedan chairs... Hackney coaches, pedestrian traffic, 
in and out of the two theatres. Gentlemen and whores, dogs, horses, chairs, parsons, bullies, proctors, old men and widows, quacks, madmen, doctors, pimps, statesmen, pocket pickers, poets and fools. Coaches and chariots, flams and chairman's poles, all makes confusion, noise, tumults and curses, swearing, breaking shins and picking purses. Freeman's Journal, Thursday, November the 18th, 1773. A few nights ago, two gentlemen from the western parts of this kingdom, who had some words at the last assizes for their county, met accidentally at the junction of Essex and Fishamble Streets. A challenge being given, they agreed to decide the affair like men of honour. A coach was instantly called, the combatants stepped into it, and politely drove together to a tavern where they got a room, locked the door, and with a calm intrepidity that would dignify a better cause, fired each a case of pistols at the same moment. One received a slight wound in the left shoulder, and the other escaped unhurt, though within three yards of his antagonist. The master and waiters ran upstairs at the noise, fearing something worse had happened, but the challenger bid them be under no concern, for the worst was over. And landlord, said he, order a good supper and the best wine, for damn me as he has fought like a gentleman, he shall drink like a hero. For wine inspires us and fires us with courage, love, and joy. Fill every glass. For wine inspires us and fires us with courage, love, and joy. Women and wine should life employ. Is there aught else on earth desires? Fill every glass. For wine inspires us and fires us with courage, love, and joy. Women and wine should life enjoy. Is there aught else on We grew up in this street to the sound of bells. Christchurch, we still have with us. They have a beautiful ring up there. Tenons also had a bell which called the men in to work in the morning and at lunch time and uh, closing down at six o'clock. The corporation bell also uh, it was a handbell to call the men into work at half eight in the morning. And then we have the most celebrated bell, I suppose, in all Dublin history, the church bell of St. Michael's and John's Church. Do you remember the room I brought you into? Uh, the drawing room? The dra- yeah. Well, in that room was held a celebrated meeting. It was in connection with the church bell of St. Michael's and John's. Catholic emancipation had not yet come into being although there was a gradual relaxation of the penal laws, but the then parish priest of St. Michael's and John's rang the church bell for Mass. 
and an alderman of Dublin Corporation took an action against the parish priest. Daniel O'Connell was called in to uh, defend for the defence of the parish priest and they held a meeting in that room which I told which I showed you earlier on uh, to pl plan out or plan a campaign. And what was the outcome? The outcome was that the case was withdrawn. It never came to court as far as anybody knows. And that bell, is it still in existence? That bell is still in existence. The only unfortunate thing was it was recast in the late 1930s or early 1940s. There was a distinct crack in the bell, a visible crack, and it was recast, but it is not wrong now. Except on... Uh, except a very odd occasion. So now we're back more or less to where we started. Can I ask you at this stage, what are your hopes for Fishamble Street? Well, to answer that, I would have to go back to my memories, my childhood memories. I would like to see the street back in its original setting. I would like to see the life that was in it then carried on. There's not an awful lot of life in it now at this present stage of its development and I would like to see life continued on as it used to be lived in this street. Of course, things are more hopeful now with the draft development plan 1987 saying that Fishamble Street should be residential rather than commercial, which the last plan said. And I think a protection order on your house and on the archway to Kennans, and the whole place being, as they call it, a rejuvenation area. So that must please you. It does indeed. Uh, Maybe we will eventually live to see another little theatre up where Cannons, where Neil's Music Hall used to be. It would be a, an admirable spot for a little small theatre. And uh, gradually bring back to the street the life that was in it once before. And what about number 26? Well, I hope my grandchildren will continue on here as we did, and our grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents. 